0: I had a classmate in seminary who was a convert from Protestantism. Like many adult converts, he was received into the church at the Easter vigil. And right then he decided that he wanted to become a priest. But being a new convert, he had no idea how the process worked. So he just got on the internet and looked up Catholic seminaries. The closest one that he saw to where he was was Mount St. Mary's in Maryland. Flush with convert zeal, he simply drove himself up there and knocked on the door of the vice rector. The vice rector had to explain to him that a man can't just enroll in a Catholic seminary of his own accord. He has to be sponsored by a diocese or religious order first. But the priest told him, since you are from a diocese that sends seminarians to the mount, go talk to them. So he made an appointment with the vocations director in his diocese. A day or two later, he met with him. He told him, I want to become a Catholic priest. Now, the vocations director pulled out his little notebook, a little folder that he gets open when he's interviewing a new candidate. And the vocation director said to him, wonderful, how long have you felt this way? Ever since I became Catholic. How long ago was that? About four days. (laughs) And I'm told that the folder just kind of closed. And he said, Let's slow this down a little bit. But he didn't turn my friend away empty-handed. The diocese put him on a two-year discernment program. He worked at a secular job while receiving spiritual direction and participating in discernment activities with the vocations office. Finally, they let him go to the seminary. Today, praise be to God, he's a Catholic priest. I always think of my classmate's story when I read this part of the Acts of the Apostles that we just heard. St. Paul, when he was first converted, wasn't yet ready to assume the apostolic office. He was rightly looked at with suspicion because he had been leading the persecution of the church. He had been described as one breathing murderous rage against the followers of Christ. My friend, of course, wasn't persecuting the church before he became a Catholic. But the church is very careful not to take recent converts into priestly or religious formation until they have spent a good few years as a layperson in the church, in order to confirm that they are really experiencing a call towards a priestly or religious vocation, rather than just some passing zeal caused by their excitement in converting to being Catholic. Now, Acts tells us that when the church leaders finally realized, by the testimony of Barnabas, that Paul's conversion was genuine, they sent him to Tarsus which is where Paul was from. Now, that would seem like a strange move. Tarsus is where Paul had grown up as a devout Jew. He came from a family that were fanatical followers of Pharisaical Judaism. Why send a new Christian convert back to his Jewish hometown? Why not keep him safely in the mantle of the church and away from any temptation to revert to being a Pharisee? Well, it's because the church recognized that Paul's conversion needed to be tried in this way for his own good. The apostles could see at this point that Paul's conversion certainly wasn't fake. He wasn't trying to infiltrate the church, as people might have feared at the beginning. But they needed to know whether his conversion was more than skin deep, that this wasn't some passing fancy. Jesus Christ himself said, A prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown and among his kin and in his own people. Now, I don't think the apostles sent Paul to evangelize Tarsus, but they did want to see if his newfound Christian faith would survive the inevitable attacks of his Pharisaical friends and family. If he could survive that, then he might really be ready for public ministry in the church. In the case of both of my friend and in the case of St. Paul, the church didn't uncritically embrace their apparent calling towards public ministry, but she also didn't dismiss it outright. Rather, she provided a personalized process that allowed that person, as well as the church, to discern in time whether that that vocation was indeed a calling from God. Long experience on the church's part shows that this is the best way to care for the souls of such persons. Recent converts are often in a very delicate spiritual situation. There is a motto that the Jesuits use to express the ethos of a Jesuit education, the cura personalis, meaning the care of the whole person. It's the motto of many Jesuit colleges and schools, including nearby Georgetown. The phrase was originally coined by the Jesuits to express the idea that a Jesuit superior has the obligation to cultivate each priest or brother in the community through a deep understanding of that man's character, his strengths, and his weaknesses. In other words, the superior had to adapt his method of teaching and governing to the character of the ones he was ruling over. It's an inversion of the world's values in which those being led need to adapt themselves to the preferences of the leaders. Yet it fits with the words of our savior, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and the great ones make their authority over them felt. But it shall not be so among you. Rather, whoever wishes to be great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. The church is at her best, her most Christ-like, we might say, when she is able to engage people in the most personalized way possible. When our ministry and our evangelization and our overall interactions with people, whether they're already Catholic or Christian or something else, really speaks to the other person in words that communicate to them, I see you. I recognize who you are. I understand where you are coming from. I'm not giving you boilerplate answers or evangelizing you like a number or a box to be checked off on a list. If we engage people in a way that reflects the cura personalis, then we are guiding them in a way that says to him, I am seeking after your good, not my own. It follows the words of St. John in our second reading, let us not love in words or speech, but in deed and truth. When we genuinely relate to others in this way, we can speak even hard truths to another person, and they will at least give us a good listening. On the other hand, if we fail to do that, that we will quickly turn people away. The ability to relate to people in the way that says to them, I see you for who you are, comes especially from the Marian dimension of the church and the Marian dimension of our own spirituality. It's that tenderly motherly embrace of the Blessed Virgin Mary that it best expresses both the missionary as well as the pastoral zeal of the church. In the gospel reading from today, Jesus says, I am the vine, and you are the branches. Well, what branch could ever be closer to the vine than the Blessed Virgin Mary? Because she is the one who brought the Christ into the world with her own body and nurtured him to manhood. Mary is the branch which we as believers must seek to align ourselves most closely so that we can reach others with the message of Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.